Please take your Bibles and look with me now to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke 17, verses 11 to 19. And I'll read the, the whole story uh, uh, before the sermon this morning. It's a short, brief story. Here, listen to the Word of God. While he, that is Jesus, was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. God bless the reading of his word. Lord, we... Thank you for your word, and pray your word will go forth and accomplish that which you purpose to do in each and every one of our hearts. Grant us ears to hear, hearts open to obedience, sensitive to your leading in our lives, and build your church, we pray, through your words, these words of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our day of uh, social distancing and sheltering in place, we have become quite familiar with the expectation of keeping a healthy distance from one another. Per, one another. Uh, and uh, whether they have COVID or not. But I don't know if you know, but way back in the Old Testament law, there already were instructions about social distancing for disease. The disease was leprosy, and in Leviticus 13 to 14 is where we find what's called the law of leprosy, which Moses recorded for God's people. In over two significantly lengthy chapters, God lays out detailed instructions for the people of God of how they were to identify and how they they were to make purification for leprosy. Both heavily involved the priests, And perhaps the most significant instruction uh, in the text is the revelation of the social isolation that would be required of those who were leprous. We read in Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. See, lepers were not allowed into the camp of Israel. They were to go about with clothes torn, head uncovered, mouth covered, while crying, unclean, unclean, whenever others were near. Most painfully, they were ceremonially unclean. We see the mention of it several times in the text. 
That meant they were unable to participate in the religious life of Israelite worship. They were looked upon by others as one cursed by God. The leper faced a lifetime of isolation and exclusion from family life and religious life. Their only company would be other lepers. You see, the leper's hopelessness would eventually become a picture of man's hopelessness against the curse of sin. The only hope for the leper and the only hope for the sinner is the mercy of God. So when Jesus came on earth, his ministry was marked by the healing of many, including lepers. We saw that in Luke 7.22. And his healing revealed that he was the Messiah and the hope for all sinners, not just those who were Jewish sinners, but Gentile ones as well. Today's passage that we're going to look at, that we've read just now, the healing of ten lepers, teaches us that the messianic offer of salvation is for all peoples, for all ethnicities, through faith in Jesus Christ. We live in a time of heightened sensitivities to all matters of race, politics, and pandemics. And this text reminds us of what can remove the barriers that divide peoples. And that is a common salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll recall that the gospel is written by a Gentile, Dr. Luke, to a Gentile, Theophilus and and his other readers. This gospel is an authoritative and accurate account that gives assurance of the truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises and plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles alike. And we're going to just walk through the story because it basically just tells itself. You just walk the story, you might point out a few significant details. And make note of what Luke wants our re- the readers to understand. He want what he, God wants you and me to understand. This passage divides neatly into two uh, parallel parts, each with an approach to Jesus, a response from Jesus, and a healing by Jesus. So we're going to see in two parallel pa- kind of exchanges that take place. So two parts. As an outline just for us today, we can simply note two exchanges that reinforce that God's plan of salvation is for all mankind. For you and for me. It's for Gentiles and for Jews. It's for people of different, uh, different ethnicities. It's for people of different backgrounds, political backgrounds. It's for different people of socioeconomic backgrounds. It's for people of different physical and mental abilities. Salvation is for all peoples through faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's look then at point number one, the first exchange. And then we see this exchange between Jesus and ten leprous men. Ten leprous men, or ten lepers. Uh, uh, it's probably more appropriate these days to, to refer to them as leprous men as opposed to lepers, but we'll, I will, we'll do kind of exchange them, use them both inter, uh, interchangeably without hopefully giving an offense. We see that this passage begins with the approach of these ten men, leprous men, to Jesus in verse 11 to 13. Their approach to Jesus. Verse 11, we, we read, While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So this verse just provides a setting. Since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke has been recording this journey of Jesus towards Jerusalem, towards his death and resurrection, ultimately his ascension in, from Jerusalem. He will not get there until his triumphal entry in Luke 19, verse 28. But 
here we find as he's, we, this reference he, the, that he was on the way to Jerusalem. This records for us his final, Jesus' final approach to Jerusalem. And as he is approaching Jerusalem for his final time, he is passing through between Samaria and Galilee. As the Passover draws near, he is likely traveling with his relatives and neighbors from Nazareth of, Gal- of Galilee towards Jerusalem, as he had done from his youth. And we saw the first one of the early records of that in Luke 2.41 and following. And although there was a direct route for people of Galilee to head to Jerusalem through Samaria, most Jewish travelers went around Samaria toward the east and then skirting between the borders of Samaria and Galilee and then down along the Jordan River. There was a reason for this, of course, and it was because the Israelites and Samaritans did not get along. And although they were neighbors, they treated each other as enemies. To the everyday Jewish person, a Samaritan was the worst kind of person. The Samaritans were the descendants of, of Jewish people who had intermarried with pagan nations. And because of the Israelites looked down upon them as being unclean Gentiles. To make matters worse, the Samaritan religion was a corruption of Judaism with the pagan religions. There was conflicts, the disagreements over where to worship. Israelites said they were to worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans said they were to worship on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So the Samaritans and Israelites hated each other. So it was surprising when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And back in Luke 10, 25 through 37, when, that taught his disciples that to, lo- to love their neighbor, including loving their enemies. The world really hasn't changed since the days of the enmity between Galilee and Samaria, or Israel and Samaria. There are still political and national conflicts. There are still racial and ethnic conflicts. There are still religious and church conflicts. And it's because of our flesh, our sinful flesh. We all still get angry and self-righteous toward others. And we think that we're right in our pride. We think we're, and we think that makes what are the, because we think we have the truth, but we're better than others. And we look down upon those who are on the other side. And we can easily get caught up in conflicts, forgetting that Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, including our enemies. Verse 12 and 13, we see then this approach of, of the ten lepers. We now formally see the approach of the ten lepers. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And then they raised their voices, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus is about to, as he's, the, the, um, the grammar here tells us, they indicates that he's about to enter into the village, this unnamed village. So it's, it, where it is doesn't really matter, but it's an unnamed one. And he is met by ten leprous men. They probably likely lived on the outskirts of the village and they heard that he was coming and so they met him right on the outskirts just as he was entering. They had, somehow they had heard of Jesus. Well, who hadn't all across Israel and all that he was doing? And they wanted to speak with Jesus, but notice that they, they first of all, they stand at a distance. They don't run right up to him. They, they stand at a distance because Jesus is surrounded by people. People would get upset, just like today. People get upset if you don't, you know, social distance. You know, they, people, they yell at you and, and, you know, look at you funny. Well, when you were a leper in those days, if you didn't keep your distance, people would, like, throw rocks at you or they'd be really angry at you. And so they, they kept their distance from Jesus. 
They can't approach because they're leprous. Certainly their disease is contagious, and according to the law, they were to stay away. They had probably already identified themselves, even from afar, as they covered their mouths and, and keeping their distance, and they're crying, unclean, unclean. By the way, doesn't that sound familiar, that social distancing and, and, wearing a ma- and covering their mouths? It's, it just <laughs> reminds us even today, isn't it? COVID-19 has definitely taken away our normal way of life. And, and some of us, some people get upset about having to social distance and wear masks, et cetera. And they're, you know, and we think that that's some kind of, like some kind of great burden upon us. Yet for us, that we have a hope of returning to normalcy. But in contrast to our day, leprosy in those days, in Jesus' day, had, was something that there was no hope for. It had taken away their lives, taken away their futures. And although leprosy was not a life-threatening disease, it was a life-debilitating disease. They were regarded as unclean and cursed by God. Whether they were Jews or Samaritans, it didn't matter. They were simply social and outcasts without hope. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. They were ignored, stayed away from. And their only hope was Jesus. Now, because of the distance that they are standing away from, uh, standing apart from Jesus, they have to raise their voices and they cry out, "Jesus, Master, have mercy on us!" Significant note that they call Jesus Master. This Greek term for Master is used only by Luke, only in his gospel. It's, it's found seven times in this gospel. All the other times, it's used by one of Jesus' disciples. And addressing the Lord in the context of his authority and power, miraculous power. And so the lepers address Jesus as one who has authority and miraculous power. Authority over them, authority over the disease. And their appeal is to his mercy. Have mercy on us. That he would have compassion upon them. That he would see their desperate need and save them from it. Save them from the helplessness. While unstated, their implied request is for healing. Healing from leprosy. Jesus hears. Jesus sees them. And Jesus responds to them. Verse 14. The response of Jesus we see. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. If you've been with us, you recall earlier in Luke how he had previously healed a leper in chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. And there, Jesus amazingly stretched out his hand and actually touched the leprous man, this unclean man. And he, then he spoke to him and he says, Encouraging the I am willing, be cleansed. And the man was instantly healed. In contrast to that healing, what we read here when Jesus simply says to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. The response from Jesus seems a little underwhelming, unimpressive even. But really, that's our fault. It's because we don't understand the, the context, uh, the, the context in which Jesus gives these instructions. It's, in a sense, it's his instructions are, are lost in translation for modern day Christians today. But an understanding of the law 
brings clarity to what Jesus says. According to the law of leprosy back in Leviticus 13 to 14, the priests were heavily involved in the process of ascertaining the existence of leprosy, confirming that it existed, and then consequently the instructions and the offering of sacrifice that were necessary whenever healing on those rare occasions did occur. Significantly, the law required that lepers who were healed were required to go show themselves to the priests for confirmation of their healing and ritual cleansing. So then, when Jesus says his words to the lepers, it was really an amazing word of hope. They asked for, Lord, have mercy on them. And they don't directly say, heal us, but he, just, he understands what they request. And he simply says to them, he doesn't say, I'm, I'm going to heal you. He says, go and show yourselves to the priests. Even before they are healed, Jesus tells them to go to the priest as if they were healed. It's a sort of test of their submission to him. They had called him master, but will they treat him as master? And if they call him master, will they believe his authority over them? Will they obey him when he tells them simply to go to the priests, go show themselves to the priests? And they, they maybe they knew the law or or not so well, but. They, as far as they could tell, were still leprous. You weren't supposed to go until you were healed. What's more, keep in mind that the priests were in the temple, and the temple was in Jerusalem, and these people are still along the border of Samaria and Galilee, far away from Jerusalem. Would they obey and make the several-day journey all the way to Jerusalem to show themselves priests? You can imagine if they showed up to the priests while leprous, upset the priest would be how they might be embarrassed but in response to Jesus' words they obey they do they respond to him we read the healing by Jesus in verse 14 uh, the latter part of verse 14 And as they were going, it says, they were cleansed. No questions asked, as far as we know. They obeyed Jesus' words. They started heading for Jerusalem. As they were going, it's almost like immediately as they started heading out, it tells us they were cleansed. Not, not ceremonially. They were cleansed in the sense that they were, forg- they were, they were healed of their leprosy. Their leprosy disappears. Their skin starts returning to normal. Any limbs that are parts of their body that might have fallen off grow back. Jesus had healed them. Jesus can heal with a touch. And Jesus can heal from afar without a touch. And not only are they healed physically, but now having been healed of, of, their, of, their, of their leprosy, they're free to return to society. They're free to return to their families, their lives that they once knew. They could to return to religious life, to participate in the temple, to participate even in the Passover that was coming up. They were given their lives back, all ten of them. No longer, in effect, dead men, but now alive because of Jesus. They had cried out for him 
to him for healing, and he healed them. And if the miracle stopped right here, this would already be an amazing story. The lesson we would draw then is that Jesus is the Messianic King. He does have power over death and disease, confirmed by the demonstration of his divine power in healing these ten lepers. God shows mercy to all. But the story continues with a second exchange, which gives us a further insight into what into Luke's purpose in, uh, into, in recording this for his readers. When we see in the second exchange, point number two, Jesus and the one leprous man. In contrast to the ten leprous man, Jesus had an exchange for one of those leprous men. The focus of the passage in verse 15 and 19 now focus on this one man. And we've seen in verse 15 to 16, his approach to Jesus, how he comes up to Jesus. Verse 15 and 16, the scriptures read, Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. See, on the way to Jerusalem, as they're heading toward Jerusalem, all ten were healed. And they must have been elated and ecstatic because they realized they had been healed, right? And while it's not explicitly stated, nine of them likely just simply continued toward the temple in Jerusalem, just as Jesus had, had instructed them in order to show themselves to the priests. They, had to, they wanted to follow the law. But one of the ten leprous men, when he saw that he had been healed, Instead of continuing on to the temple at that point, he immediately turns back to Jesus. The passive voice of the verb healed indicates that he was healed by God. He had cried out for mercy from God and he had received mercy from God. It's the mercy of God that had brought about his healing. So he responds by doing basically two things in this text. First, he turns back and he glorifies God. He gives glory to God. He turns from heading, back to, <clears throat> from heading to the temple back to Jesus. Glorifying, worshiping, praising God. Note that he does so with a loud voice. He doesn't have to, but he does it because he's so full of joy. He's excited. He's ecstatic. It's, been, it's a miraculous healing. It's from where he had no hope. He was good as dead. And he then all of a sudden was born. <laughs> like he was mostly as if he was born and he got a new life. He acknowledges God as the one who healed him. He glorifies God with a loud voice. Secondly, he responds a different way. The healed leper, then as he returns to Jesus, he, he falls at Jesus' feet and he, give th- and he gives thanks to Jesus. Notice just immediately the, immediate, the contrast is of with his early circumstances. Earlier he had stood apart from Jesus. He was away from Jesus. He was crying out with his mouth covered, unclean, unclean, have mercy on me, Master Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. But now he's falling at the feet of Jesus. He's so close to Jesus. He's giving thanks to Jesus. The posture of falling at Jesus' feet is an act of submission. It's an act of reverence. This lone, leprous man who returns back to Jesus is acknowledging 
and by, give, by glorifying God and by giving thanks to Jesus is acknowledging that God is at work in Jesus. That he knows the two are connected, that Jesus is here on the mission for God, that he is God's servant. Perhaps the leprous man is even acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messianic King. But clearly what we see here is an example of the gratitude that all who experience of the power of God ought to express. Praise to God and thanks to Jesus. Now while most of us here have never been healed of leprosy, we have been all, most, I would hope the majority of us in this, in this gathering have been healed of something much worse. And that is the curse of sin. A disease that is even even our own death could not defeat. Unlike leprosy, it, it had ruined our lives and alienated us from our relationship with God and our relationship with others. It condemned us to a life under its bondage, corrupting all that we did, slowly leading to our inevitable death and eternal judgment. But in Christ, we have been forgiven. Because we cried out to God in mercy for mercy, He showed us mercy in Jesus Christ. And as those who have been forgiven us, we ought to be thankful. We ought to be grateful to God and to Jesus. And this gratitude and gratefulness should be the characteristic of our lives. Are you a grateful person as a believer in Jesus Christ? Does your life reflect gratitude? Or are you, is your life always reflecting grumbling, complaining? You have Jesus. Why are you complaining about the other things in your life? Ingratitude, in fact, is the mark of those who do not know God. Paul wrote in Romans one twenty one: For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. See, unbelievers, unregenerate people do not honor God. Even though they, they can recognize God, they, even these, these ten, uh, 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 those, they were healed, they could see God at work, but they don't come back and give thanks. And at the end of verse, as we come back to the text in, in Luke, Luke 17, at the end of verse 16, Luke suddenly drops a surprise on the reader. He tells us, and he was a Samaritan. This one leprous man who returned to Jesus, glorifying God, giving thanks to Jesus, falling at his feet, was a Samaritan, a hated enemy, an unclean Gentile. What we see here is that even Gentiles can turn to Jesus for mercy and glorify God. We've been seeing that as a pattern throughout Luke's gospel so far. See, Jesus' mercy is not only for Abraham and his family, but it's for all the families of the earth, including yours and mine. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. We see the uh, in as the response of Jesus to the approach of this one leprous man. In verse 17 to 18. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, I'll stop. I'll stop right there. In these two verses, Jesus poses three rhetorical questions. Not to the, to the one man, but he poses it to 
the crowds and the disciples around him, the Jewish crowds around him who were heading towards the Passover. Jesus' questions are for us as his disciples to answer as well, to think about and ponder. They're for the reader to, to consider. Three rhetorical questions. Number one, the first question was, weren't there ten cleansed? Yes, of course, they, they were all cleansed. They all had cried out. They all had received God's mercy. It reminds us that our God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Luke 6.35 you know, In fact, if, Jesus, if God waited for us to be grateful before He would heal us or save us, none of us would ever be healed and saved. None of us. But number two question, second question, what happened to the nine others who were healed? Why didn't they return to give glory to God? Why did they not come back to give thanks to Jesus? Certainly they must have been glad or to be healed. They must have believed that God healed them. Why don't they come back to Jesus? Why don't they give thanks to Him? We'll answer this in a bit. And the third question, three, why did this Samaritan, Jesus wants to answer, why did the Samaritan alone return to give glory to God? Why did He alone show gratitude to Jesus? Jesus' third question hints that the other nine were likely Jewish in background because Jesus identifies this man as this foreigner. Jesus had expected them all to return, but only the one foreigner, this foreigner, returned, he says, and he is commended for it by Jesus. Significantly, Jesus' uses of this term foreigner stands out to us. There's a, even the term itself, even today, it implies someone who's different, who's different from the rest of us. He's not like us. He's someone of a different kind. In fact, that's what this word foreigner means. That's allogenes. You think of, um, you've heard the term monogenes, one of a kind. Allogenes is of a different kind. This person is of a different kind. This is a foreigner is the, is the term. In the New Testament, when speaking of Gentiles, the most common word is the Greek word ethnos. It's really from which we get ethnicities. It refers to different people, peoples of different nations, people of different types of peoples outside of Israel. But the term that Jesus uses here, alogenes, is found only here in all of the New Testament. Nowhere else do we find this word. Only here in this text recorded by, by, by Luke. But though the word is unique and found, is, uh, is only found here in the New Testament, every Jewish person would have been familiar with this word. Especially, they would have been reminded of it during their annual feasts, their three, whenever they headed to the temple. And in this case, they were heading to the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover. Because on the temple wall, separating the court of Gentiles from the temple proper, there were spread around the wall, uh, this, the, the temple proper wall, there would be these stones with inscriptions on it. In fact, there's, uh, there's two uh, existing copies of, uh, two existing such inscriptions still existing today. Uh, one is in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum, and I kind of put it up there for a photo for you. And this inscriptions, they have another one that's in the uh, um, Jerusalem Museum. It's called the Temple Warning Inscription. Basically, it's written in Koine Greek. It's written in Greek so that 
people who, uh, that was the most common language in that day. Everybody could read it. And basically, it translates to this. Let no alogenes, let no foreigner, enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his, for his ensuing death. Strong warning. That it reminded everyone who was not a Jew, who was a Gentile, that they were alogenes. They were of a different kind. They were apart, separated from Israel. They could not go into the temple proper. They could only stand in the court of the Gentiles. Basically outside the temple proper. Knowing this then, that the meaning of this term that Jesus uses, alogenes, this foreigner, one can then see a profound truth in this exchange. This foreigner who was told to go to the, to temple, to the, to show himself to the priests who were in the temple in Jerusalem was actually not allowed into the temple to worship. And so he rightly turns to the ultimate temple, to Jesus Christ, in whom God dwells in bodily form. In order to worship and glorify God, in order to give thanks to Jesus, the Son of God. As we read in our call to worship in the new Jerusalem, and in the new heavens and earth, the Apostle John records in Revelation 21-22 about how he saw there was no temple in the new Jerusalem. In the millennial kingdom, be, there will be a true temple. But in the, after the millennial kingdom, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the earth, there's not going to be a temple. Why? Because God himself and the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, are the temple. It's where we can go to meet God directly. We don't need to go to a building to meet God. Jesus is the place through whom we can meet God in the face-to-face. And so while all ten received God's mercy in their healing from leprosy, the nine didn't return because they failed to see Jesus as the Messianic King. Only this Samaritan, only this foreigner, understood that he could go to Jesus to give glory to God. Because Jesus is the Messianic King. He is the Messianic Servant. He is the Messianic Son of God. And he, had, and he came to Jesus and he submitted himself to Jesus, bowing at his feet, worshiping God at the feet of Jesus. And that's why the Samaritan returns. And Jesus ends with one final word to the Samaritan. We see the healing in this, uh, the healing of Jesus, the healing by Jesus. Verse 19. And he said to the him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus tells this man that his faith had made him well. Literally, Jesus says to him, Your faith has saved you. Now, it's possible on one hand to reinterpret this as Jesus simply explaining that the Samaritan's faith had resulted in his healing from leprosy. It's possible. It's a simple, it's, that is a possibility. But in light of the contrast that Jesus points out between the Samaritan and the other nine who didn't return to give glory to God, Jesus is more likely conveying something that is unique about this Samaritan. The better interpretation is that Jesus is telling this Samaritan 
that his faith in Jesus has resulted in his salvation from sin. What sets this man apart from the nine isn't merely that he was grateful, but that he returned to give glory to God at the feet of Jesus. He had a saving faith in Jesus Christ. He understood rightly that Jesus is the Christ. He is saved not because, and this man is saved not because of his physical ancestry. He was not a, a Jewish. He was a Samaritan. He's not observed, saved by his observance of ceremonial worship. He observed the pagan corruption of Judaism, of, of, of the Samaritan faith. He's not observed by anything he does in the temple. He didn't even go to that temple. He is saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And what is true then remains true today. So whether we are Jewish or whether we are foreigners, whether we are white or black or yellow or brown or red, whether we are Republican or Democrat or Independent or anything, something or, or Marxist or Communist, we are all people in need of God's mercy. And we all can find it in Jesus. And in gratitude, we all can worship God in and through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, all the barriers that we have that find between us and others can be broken down. They all can pale in comparison when we realize that when we see another who has faith has a faith in Jesus Christ, that is another brother or sister in the Lord whom we will spend eternity in. And we're not going to be upset about our politics in the, in the New Jerusalem. We're not going to be upset or disturbed by the, the color of our skin if that's what disturbs you. We're not going to be disturbed by what, what disagreements we had about church matters, church polity, and what, how we observe, relate with, with government rules and regulations in glory. We will only be worshiping and loving Jesus Christ. And that eternal destiny that awaits all of us who have faith in Jesus Christ should teach us a little humility and grace that we can show to others who are different. That we would not allow the, the barriers. Yes, they exist. We understand we're, we're, our backgrounds and, our, and maybe our different political uh, uh, leanings or even the things that we may disagree with we have about church polity even, and practice, and they, they might matter in this life to some extent. But in eternity, in the new Jerusalem, they'll be the, they'll be the, we'll look back and they'll be the most foolish things that we spend our time getting worked up about. As Christians, we need to live above the conflicts that this world is so easily entangled and excited about. If you're, if you're the most exciting thing you're looking forward to is the election that's coming up in November, you have misplaced your sight. Put your sight upon the new Jerusalem. Put your sight on Jesus. Trust him for the election. Yes. And vote, please do. But our hope, our eternal destiny does not rest on who wins or loses. It doesn't matter. Well, as we conclude.
this real life event, this real life healing that took place between Jesus and these ten lepers and the one Samaritan leper who returned is like a parable for us today almost. Because we're all lepers. We're all like the lepers. We're all sinners. We're all hopeless and dead in our sins. We can't do anything about it. And all we can do is cry out for mercy, and that's all we can do. And God has Himself has shown kindness to us all by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. And yet, like the nine, many ignore or reject God's kindness in their unbelief. Ungrateful, they continue in their evil ways. But may you and I, may you and I who have heard this text, read this text today, may you and I be like the one, the Samaritan, who in faith turned back to Jesus, turned to Jesus, gave glory to God, submitted to Him, and gave thanks to Jesus for saving Him. May you and I do that. May that be our attitude. May we have this grateful attitude that because of what Jesus has done, turns to Him in faith, putting our trust in Him. And if you haven't already, please, I invite you to turn to Him today and put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved from your sins. Three questions I'll leave with you, just as a kind of for your thought, for your thought and discussion in your homes, in your small groups. Question number one, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God through whom God's promises of salvation are fulfilled? Because that is what Luke reveals for us in his gospel. He is the one in whom all of God's plans to save mankind are, are fulfilled in. No one else. There's salvation no one else. It's only Jesus. And what you understand of Jesus will determine your eternal destiny. Like the leprous man who came back. He saw Jesus as the Messiah. If you haven't, believe in Him today. Put your trust in Jesus as King, as Lord, as Savior. Turn from your sin. Repent from your way of life and turn to Him in faith and follow Jesus. Question number two, if you have followed Jesus, if you are, have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then how, the question is to ask for you for examination is reflection. How does your life reflect gratitude to God? Your life ought to be one of thankfulness because you've been forgiven of so much. Will you, how does your life reflect gratitude? And how does your life give glory to God? Just because we're all sheltered in place doesn't mean, doesn't not an excuse for you to take a break from giving thanks to God or take a break from giving, bringing glory to God. You should be able to do that in your homes, in, the, in your relationships with your family, in the relationship with maybe your neighbors and others in your life, even now, especially now. And then thirdly, uh, and a third question, what barriers exist between you and other Christians? We have all sorts of differences, I know. But sometimes we allow those barriers, the differences for us, to become dividing walls for us. And Jesus broke down the dividing wall, right? He broke down the between God and God. And he broke down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Ask yourself, how can the death of Christ for your sins help you to pursue peace with one another? Because that honors God. That honors Jesus Christ. May these questions cause you to walk in greater holiness with the Lord, applying God's word to your life. Let us always 
give glory to God because he saved us and give thanks to Jesus for he died for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you in your word. And cause your word to go forth and accomplish what, that what you purpose to do in each of our lives. Help us to repent of ingratitude. Help us to repent of enmity and that we may be feeling towards other believers and even other unbelievers. Help us to confess our sins and renew our commitment to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves, even our enemies. Help us to pursue peace with one another and help us to rightly recognize who Jesus is. Help us to keep putting our faith in Jesus, the one who lived and died for us. God, as the world continues to foment and increase in conflict, help us to rise above it all, to not be caught up with it, but instead to be men and women who are about the business of the kingdom of God, proclaiming how others can enter into the joy of the presence of being with you in the eternal city that awaits us all, that will be open to all the nations, all peoples who place their faith in Jesus, whose name is written in the book of life. God, we pray that all who are with us today would have that confidence, that we'd have that assurance that we have believed in Jesus and that is our hope. These things we pray for your glory in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.